Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Second Peter chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 19 through 21. And the uh, topic or the main idea here is the prophetic Word of God. Second Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to uh, go ahead and start in verse 16 and read down through verse 21. Since we dealt with 16 through 18 last week, we'll pick it up, uh, Lord willing, verse 19 this morning. So as I read for you uh, this passage, I'm reminding you that this is the inspired Word of God, so please pay attention and listen with faith and reverence to the reading of God's Holy Word. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. For we know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. So if you you look back at verse 16, Peter's focus now is on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw last week that the words that he used clearly refers to the future second coming of Jesus Christ. And he says that basically they saw a preview of the second coming when they saw the glory of Christ at the transfiguration. And so he's talking now in verses 19-21 through just about the certainty of the second coming not only because of the transfiguration that prefigured it, but now also because of the word of prophecy that foretells its coming as well. The second coming. Before we kind of launch into the passage, I want to just kind of talk about uh, prophecy and the importance of it found in Holy Scripture. Because today, many people doubt and question that the Bible is inspired by God. And as we reason with people and maybe bring in some apologetics, one of the great arguments to support the inspiration of the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. And when you can show people that of events that were prophesied centuries, even thousands of years before they took place, and they happened exactly as they were foretold, it can, with the Spirit's help, help someone to understand the idea that the Bible is inspired by God. For example, when you talk about the prophecies of 
Christ's first coming in the Old Testament, uh, scholars will say there's an average of about 300 prophecies. Some will say 400, some will say 200. So a good average is about 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that foretold the coming of Jesus Christ, His life, His ministry, His death, His resurrection. So a professor of uh, Westmont College, who was a mathematician, did some calculations on what would be the probability of one man fulfilling eight of those prophecies, just eight of them. And he said for that to occur, that would be like 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Or 1 in that big number down below, which is actually called 100 quadrillion. And once you get to number to odds that huge, in essence you can say it's impossible for one man to fulfill eight of those prophecies in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus Christ fulfilled them. That's just eight. One in a hundred quadrillion. Which would be impossible for one man to fulfill all of those just by chance or by rote. But Jesus Christ fulfilled them so you can see the miraculous inspired stamp of God on these prophecies. But that, again, that's just eight of three hundred. So then he thought he would calculate what would be the odds of one man fulfilling forty-eight of those 300 prophecies. And he came up with the odds being this, one in that number, whatever in the world you call that number, I have no idea, but it's insanely impossible for one man to fulfill 48 of those prophecies. Now what about 300 of them? Well, I did not figure that out. So it would take multiple slides of zeros to get anywhere close to that. But the professor concluded that any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the Word of God. So all of this basically just confirms to us That the Bible is the inspired Word of God because it prophesies of things sometimes centuries or even a millennium or more in advance. And it has come true absolutely 100%. So that you can be 100% confident that when you hold the Bible in your hands, you have a book that is inspired by Almighty God like no other book in all the universe. So all of those 300 prophecies dealt with the first coming of Jesus Christ. And if all of those came true, and they did, then all the prophecies about the second coming of Jesus Christ likewise will come true. We can trust the Word of God. It's absolutely sure And the second coming of Jesus Christ will come to pass. So again, just looking at the context of our passage, in verse 16, Peter says, We didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we told you about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here again, he's talking about the second coming. Wasn't based on fables. And the first reasoning 
that we should be certain of the second coming, Peter says, as we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And then he talks about the transfiguration. They saw Christ transfigured in glory, which was a preview of the glory that Christ would bring at the second coming. He said, not only that, we heard the Father speak from heaven these incredible words. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So he's trying to give his readers the confidence to believe in the certainty of the second coming because later on in this epistle, when you get to chapter 3, there are going to be false teachers who will deny the second coming. So Peter is doing a little tilling of the ground ahead of time to prepare for dealing directly with that false teaching, denying the second coming in uh, in chapter 3. So he deals with it briefly here in uh, chapter 1. So his first uh, reasoning for believing in the certainty of it is that Peter says, look, we've already seen the glory of the second coming as a preview in the transfiguration. So it's going to happen because they're linked. The glory we saw in Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration is but a prelude to the glory that He will have at the second coming. So we're confident that proves the second coming is a reality. But then in verse 19, he goes on to say, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now, interesting, this has created a lot of different opinions on what, what does Peter mean making the prophetic word more sure? Because in one sense, you can't make the word of God more sure. It is sure, it's infallible, it's authoritative, it's inspired, but Peter here is speaking, well, we have, we have the prophetic word made more sure. And so what some people say in interpreting this is that Peter is drawing a contrast with the transfiguration. And this is, uh, for example, John MacArthur's view if you read his uh, study Bible. He'll say it's like this. Peter says they had this incredible experience of Mount Transfiguration. They saw Christ transformed. They heard the voice. But we even have a better authority than the transfiguration. We have the prophetic Word of God. And so there's a contrast. We had the transfiguration, but we have even a more sure authority in prophecy. And so, the reason why he takes that view, and it's a, it's a legitimate concern, is because he doesn't want anybody to read this passage and think that their personal experience has more authority than Scripture. And a lot of people will do that. They'll read it and they'll say, look, they had this experience of transfiguration and, and, uh, and that's, that's uh, even more authoritative to me than the Word of God. So, uh, so if I have an experience with God, then that's more authoritative than actually the Word of God. And that, that would be a danger indeed. And you can certainly understand why he would uh, be concerned about that. We all should be concerned about that error. But experience, of course, should never be more authoritative than, uh, than, our, than the Scriptures. 
Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So you can't get more authoritative and certain than the word of God itself. But I I don't think that's really what Peter has in mind here. That he's contrasting the transfiguration, the experience of the transfiguration with the prophetic inspired word of God. That the scriptures are more authoritative and a better testimony to the second coming than the transfiguration. I think if that's what Peter meant, he would have used, starting in verse 19, some kind of a contrasting expression. Like, well, we had the transfiguration, but, or on the contrary, we have the more sure word of the prophecy of Scripture. But he uses simply the word and, which is translated so, But actually, it's just the simple word and. So if he really meant to contrast the transfiguration authority and the Scripture authority, seems like he should have included some kind of opening words in verse 19 that would indicate a contrast. But he doesn't. Secondly, another argument against that particular view is that is Peter really saying that the that the prophetic word of god found in the old testament is more authoritative than us hearing the word of god from the father directly from heaven would he really be saying that that is less authoritative than just reading it as it's funneled through men who write it down i don't think so both are equally authoritative both are inspired by god I don't think Peter is saying, well, we we had this experience. We heard the Father's voice from heaven, but when God speaks through men and they write it down, that's more authoritative. I don't think that's really what he's saying. It doesn't make sense to me. So the better way to interpret verse 19, I think, is instead of seeing Peter contrasting the Scriptures of prophecy with the transfiguration, is he saying the transfiguration has confirmed the word of prophecy to us. Not a contrast. But the transfiguration helped us in our human weakness to understand and embrace the truth of prophecy found in Scripture. So it's a confirming view rather than a contrasting view. So in effect, what Peter is saying is that when we saw the transfiguration of Christ in glory and we heard the Father's voice from heaven, that confirmed to us, and this is all confirmed later by the Holy Spirit, that Christ is going to come again. That the second coming is a reality and that experience of the transfiguration strengthened our health, our faith. It helped our faith to believe in it. And, and I think that makes sense to me because oftentimes the faith of the disciples uh, was very slow to understand the things that Jesus taught or the things that Scripture taught. You know, five times in the Gospel, Jesus had to rebuke His disciples as being what? Oh, ye men of... Little faith. Their faith needed to be strengthened. Their faith needed to have confirmation. And I think that's the point of the transfiguration. 
It helped to strengthen and confirm their understanding and conviction of the truthfulness of Scripture. You could say the same thing of the resurrection. Jesus didn't need to appear to anybody to prove that He rose from the dead. I mean, He rose from the dead. That's a fact. He didn't have to appear to the disciples, but their faith needed to see Him in order to understand it. Even Thomas. Thomas needed to have that challenge of put your finger in my wound and touch me and know that it's me that has arisen from the dead. So again, that experience merely confirmed. It didn't establish the truthfulness of the fact of the resurrection, but it certainly helped the weakness of their faith embrace it. So this happens throughout Scripture. When God makes a promise to His people or He gives them a word of prophecy of something going to happen in the future, but their faith is slow to grasp it, so He gives them a sign, or He he helps them in some tangible way to confirm that truth to their hearts. For example, with Moses. When God appeared to him at the burning bush, told him He's going to send him back to Egypt to rescue His people out of bondage. Moses said, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? Or or what if they say the Lord has not appeared to you? What am I going to do then? So God said, well, take your staff, throw it on the ground. Threw it on the ground, came a snake. Then he said, grab it by the tail. And you don't grab snakes by the tail. You grab them by the head. Because they'll bite you if you grab them by the tail. But when he grabbed it by the tail, it turned back into his staff again. It was kind of one of those miracle things. And then he says, take your hand. Stick it in your, your bosom. Pull it out again. It's white as leprosy. Stick it in again. Pull it back out. Then it looks like a normal hand. Those were the signs he was to show to the leaders of Israel. To help confirm them that the prophecy of the deliverance from Egypt was going to take place. God accommodates our weakness. He did with Moses. He did with Gideon. Twice with the the fleece. He did with Hezekiah when God told him that he would be healed of his sickness and he wouldn't die. And Hezekiah says, well, what sign will you show me, God, that your prophecy to me, your word to me, that I will not die, will come true? So God says, well, you want me to make the shadow go forward or backward ten steps? And he says, well, to go forward is easy. Make it go backwards and went backwards ten steps. So what did God do? He accommodated the weakness of his faith. Peter had to have the same thing done with him. Preached to the, to the Gentiles, these unclean dogs. You're going to let them in? And so God gave him this dream and the sheet came down full of unclean animals and he said, Peter, arise and eat. But Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. But through that, God helped Peter understand the prophetic word that the Gospel will now go out to all the nations. So this is, I think, what Peter is doing What he's saying here in verse 19, he's saying that God has confirmed His promise of the second coming to us found in prophecy when He showed us Christ transfigured and we heard His voice from heaven. 
So we have the prophetic word made more sure from a human perspective. You can't make it more sure from God's perspective. It's the inspired authoritative word of God. But from man's perspective, I think that's what Peter is saying. So once he has established that, how are we to respond? Well, Peter says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So now we have the prophetic word of God. And this will be true of all of Scripture, but in the context primarily of the coming day of judgment, Jesus Christ coming again. We have that in Scripture. We have the transfiguration that confirmed it to us. So now how should you respond to it? Pay attention. You need to pay attention to the Word of God. That's what he's emphasizing here. To pay attention to something means to give heed to it. To be alert to it so that you don't drift away from it. That you order your life in line with it. You pay attention to the Word of God. Now we, we pay attention to things all the time. So if you have any money in the stock market, you pay attention to the stock market. Or if you have one of these cell phones, how often do you pay attention to your cell phone? I mean, they've just vibrated. I've got to pick it up and read the text or look at the email or whatever. We pay attention to cell phones all the time, many times throughout the day. And while Peter is saying, you've got to pay attention to the Word of God. You need to let it guide you. You need to focus on it. It's so easy to neglect it. I mean, which is more important to hear? To hear from God or to hear from your friends or your family members texting you? And yet, how quick are we to pull out our phones and, and read the text and respond to it? And yet, how oftentimes our Bible just lays their idol in our homes with dust collecting on it. Peter says, don't let that happen. Pay attention to the Word of God. Will you pay attention to it by disciplining yourself to read it regularly, to meditate upon it, seek to understand it? Parents need to pay attention to the Word of God and teaching it to their children. They need to seek to have their families directed by the Word of God. I need to bring the truths into my daily life, whether it's work or play or whatever I'm doing. We need to always be paying attention to the Word of God. That's what he's saying to them. And then he gives an analogy. You will do well to pay attention. You will not do well if you neglect it. But you will do well if you pay attention as to a lamp Shining in a dark place. So this is his analogy to help us understand why it's so important to pay attention to the Word of God because the Scripture is like a lamp shining in a dark place. I love what uh, Psalm 119 says. Very similar your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And what Peter is saying, in effect, in his verse, is that basically we live in a very dark world, don't we? 
I mean, not only full of moral corruption, it's just a spiritual darkness, really. And it seems to be growing. It's always been here. It's always been growing, really, in a real sense. But we live in a world of darkness. And Scripture describes the world using this metaphor of it's a dark place. Just as a, as a representation of sin and just all the rebellion that goes on within our world. But he says the Word of God, prophecy and really all of Scripture is a lamp. It's a light to us that shines in the midst of our darkness. It's a lamp to guide our feet, to light our path so we don't stumble. Now many years ago, there were some men from the church that went to Colorado and we were going to climb uh, Long's Peak, which is one of the uh, 54 mountains in Colorado that are at 14,000 feet elevation or higher. So we were going to climb Long's Peak and it's a 15 mile round trip and the elevation gain is over a mile. So you're going to have to climb up a mile, over a mile to get to the top from where you, you start out at. Well, it was such a long trip 15 miles round trip that we need to start really, really early in the morning. So we started at 4 a.m. And of course, back then, we all bought these little headlamps. So here you are walking in pitch darkness at 4 a.m. in the morning. And you've got this headlamp that's shining down your path. And if you do not pay attention to it, you're going to stub your toe. You're going to trip on a root that's out there. Or you're going to get close to some cliff and fall off of it and die. So the whole idea of paying attention, we had to pay attention. Our safety depended on it. And I think I stubbed and probably bashed up my knees and everything because you know you look away for a second and you hit a rock and now you're down on your face. And that's the idea of what living in this world is like. We're like walking through the darkness and there's all kinds of pits and snares and rocks and roots and, and wild critters out there in the darkness that want to devour us. And what Peter is saying, you need to pay attention to the light of God's Word. Because it will illuminate your path. It will protect you so you can see where you're going and avoid all the snares of the evil one and also of the world in which we live. We live in a dark place. Now, it may have the sun out shining, but spiritually, it's a decadent, dead, and dark place place we can't see this darkness with our eyes but we feel it and it's always pressing in around us it's always entering through our ears coming into our eyes it's always there it's a spiritual domain of darkness in which satan is the ruler of this world and peter is saying you need the light of scripture you need to walk by the light because it shines and illumines your path in the midst of the darkness. Now, since the emphasis is on primarily on God's prophetic word of the second coming, 
that in and of itself is a very valuable truth for us to live by in the midst of a world full of darkness. To know that Jesus Christ is coming back because the Word of God does tell us that ultimately history is going to end and Jesus Christ will end it when He comes. And all will ultimately be well in the end because all that's been prophesied. So that when we're going through this world of darkness and we see all the evil and stuff pressing in and gaining territory, we can, we can become frantic. We can become fearful. We can become depressed. But if you read the Word of God and let the light of Scripture illuminate your path, you're going to have hope. You're going to have confidence because God is sovereign. And there's nothing that happens in this world that He has not ordained. And we can fight back to darkness with whatever grace God gives us, but ultimately we can trust that God's predetermined will is going to take place. Christ will come. And all that is evil and bad will be justly punished by God if people do not repent. So we have great hope, great peace, great joy in the Word of God, particularly living in times of great discouragement and darkness. I love Psalm 119, verse 50 also. This is my comfort and my affliction that Your Word has revived me. And how we need to be revived because living in this oppression of a world system of darkness, it it can steal away our joy. It can make us discouraged. And we lose our peace. But the Word of God has revived me, David says. It's filled me with peace and strength and joy. We need that light shining in days of darkness. And Peter's saying, therefore, pay attention. Pay attention to this Word because it's a light shining in the darkness. It's interesting that without the light of Scripture, what do men do? Well, like the Quakers... They turn to their own inner light. And that's not good. But they begin to look for the light from within. They begin to look to the wisdom around them. And that's always a disaster. Proverbs says there's a Scripture out of your life and then it's the values of the world that will come in and dominate. And you'll become one with the darkness when we should be children of light Walking in the darkness, in a world of darkness, we become darkness ourselves. And that's why Jesus pointed out against the hypocrites, the Pharisees, who thought they had light. See, they thought they had the light, but their light was really darkness. They were totally deceived. And the Lord says, how great is the darkness. So we need the light. There's only one lamp. That Peter's talking about. There's only one lamp shining in a dark place, and it's scripture. It's not your feelings, it's not your experiences, it's not your own wisdom, it's the Word of God. That is the lamp. And it's shining in a dark place. And Peter says, You need to pay attention to it. Well, how long do we need to pay attention to it? Well, he says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is an interesting uh, expression. He says that you need to pay attention to the Word of God. It's a lamp shining in the darkness until the day dawns. So what's the day that he has in mind? Well, it's the day of the Lord. 
It's the day of the second coming. That's ultimately the day that He has in mind. In other words, you need to pay attention to Scripture until the Lord comes back. Because you're living in this dark world, you need the light of Scripture to encourage you, to bless you, to guide you in the midst of the maze of life. So until the day, until the day dawns. In the Old Testament, the phrase, the, the day of the Lord, occurs in many historical contexts. And it usually refers to the enemies of God being judged, whether it be the Babylonians or the Assyrians, and God rescuing His people, the day of the Lord. But all those were kind of a prelude to the final and last day of the Lord when Jesus Christ comes. Christ is even referred to as a sunrise from on high. So when the day dawns, that's again the reference of the sunrise from on high appearing. And that's a reference to the second coming. But then Peter adds, and the morning star arises in your heart. So you need to pay attention to the Word of God, the prophetic Word, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. The morning star back in the first century among the secular societies normally was a reference to Venus shining in the, uh, in the eastern sky. You can go out early in the morning, you'll see Venus here. Obviously, that's not what Peter has in mind. But uh, the morning star arising in your heart is probably another reference to the coming of Christ. But more than just the coming of Christ, the morning star arising in your heart. So it probably speaks to the glorification that comes that we experience when Jesus Christ comes back. It just penetrates and fills us from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. Completely transforms us into light or children of light in the presence of Christ. That's probably my best attempt to explain what the morning star arises in your hearts. But notice it's personal. It arises in your hearts. Now you experience it. And I think it's more than just regeneration. I think it's ultimately referring to that glorified state. It's interesting, in Revelation 2, Jesus says to, his, to one of the churches that on that day when He comes back, He will give His redeemed the morning star. Now sometimes the morning star refers to Christ here uh, understood in that light and referring to the state of glorification. So then from verse 19, which in effect Peter has said, the transfiguration has given us the Word of God confirmed to us. And because we are totally trusting in the reliability of Scripture, Christ will come again, plus everything else that Scripture says, pay attention to it. And you need to pay attention until Christ comes back and you're glorified. And then he goes on and adds in verse 20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So now he's talking about interpreting this prophetic word. Now, I don't think what Peter means by verse 20 is the idea of the Roman Catholic view, which basically would tell its people, look, people, don't read the Bible and think that you can interpret it privately on your own. Uh, you should not do that. It's the uh, church leaders. It's the pope. It's the cardinals. 
we are the ones who interpret it correctly. Don't trust your ability to understand it. You need to look to us. And that's why for so many, many years, the Catholic Church didn't even want the people reading the Bible in their native tongue. They've changed that. But still, it's the idea, be careful trying to interpret it. Trust the church. The church has the right interpretation. Don't trust anything you come up with. I don't think that's what Peter's referring to at all. We are all told that we need to study and read and try to comprehend the Word of God. Uh, but that's not what I think he has in mind here. When he says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. I think what Peter has in mind are those false teachers that have distorted the Old Testament prophecies to the point where they have denied the second coming. I think that's really kind of in the backdrop of his thinking. I think Peter is attacking the false teachers who are misinterpreting the Scriptures, the prophecies, contradicting the apostolic interpretation that confirms the second coming. They were denying it. And I think that they are kind of in Peter's mind when he says no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, the apostles believe and we are convinced a second coming is going to happen. That's what prophecy clearly says. These false teachers over here, they're relying on their own personal interpretation. They are distorting it. And it's not a matter of their own subjective interpretation. It's a matter of how the Spirit of God has actually confirmed that to us, the apostles. Christ has made that clear to us. We're correct. The false teachers are in the wrong. I think that's really kind of more so what he has in mind. The apostles were given the truth. The transfiguration confirmed it to him that Jesus Christ is coming again. They had that repeated and confirmed over and over and over again. And so they were confident. But the false teachers, again, were reading it and they were twisting it and they were perverting the meaning. So I think Peter has them primarily in view. By the way, there's a bit of a hermeneutical principle here. When the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, that's the right interpretation. A lot of people want to go back and interpret the Old Testament only in light of the Old Testament and exclude the New Testament interpretation. Not a good idea. If the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, the New Testament is authoritative and the right interpretation. And I think again, that's sort of what Peter is getting at. And then he adds in verse 21, he adds to that that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So now he's giving us the very origin of prophecy. In verse 20, he talked about the interpretation of prophecy. Verse 21, he now tells us of the origin of prophecy. And what does he say? He says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. In other words, the Scriptures as a whole, including all prophecy, is not a man-made document like unbelievers would have us believe. No prophecy 
was ever made by an act of human will. Man just didn't come together and write it down like someone writes a book today. But rather, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now yes, notice in verse 21 at the end, men spoke from God. So men are a part of Scripture. They're a part of prophecy. God uses their personalities. He uses their vocabulary. He uses their writing styles. All of that is preserved. So it's not like the dictation theory of inspiration where God just speaks His Word and they listen and write it down as if they were just uh, 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 God was dictating it to them. That's not the idea at all. But rather God sovereignly guided their wills, their minds to choose the exact words that God wanted them to record in Scripture. It's a bit of a mystery how God does this, but it's clearly what the Bible teaches. Men are moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God when they wrote it down. God uses their personalities, but God overrode and guided their personalities or vocabulary to write exactly what God wanted. So it's not an act of human will because God's Spirit was overriding and guiding their human will to accomplish a flawless, inspired, authoritative document being the Word of God. Now this is an interesting argument for people who think that God would never violate our wills. They say, well, man has a free will. God would never violate our wills. Well, if you think about it, if you hold that view, you do not hold to the inspiration of the Bible. Because there is no way that man could write an inspired book as Peter is very clearly telling us, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. It was made by God's will. came upon them and so worked in a way that they weren't even aware of it, but took their will and guided them in every single word they chose to write down. That was a product of the Spirit of God through them. So that their wills were under the control of the Holy Spirit. Which is a which every believer ought to acknowledge that. And if they think about it, it ought to make them rethink their view about the freedom of the will. Because God superintended and guided them to produce the Scriptures that we love so much. So get by ourselves. It takes the breath of the Spirit of God through us to write something that's infallible. Be like a flute. A flute or clarinet cannot produce any sound on its own. And we have musicians here. But you hold a flute, it's no sound. It cannot produce any kind of a sound that would be a blessing or a delight to the ears until you breathe through that flute. And when the breath of an undepraved vessel is like a flute, we could never produce an inerrant document But when the Spirit of God blows through that individual, well, then they can produce Holy Scripture. It's a miracle of the grace of God. This word for moved, interestingly enough, is used in Acts chapter 27. You remember when Paul is out on the ship and there's this great violent northeasterly wind that blows in called the Uroquillo? 
And it was so violent and so strong, their ship, there's no way they could maneuver the ship in light of the strength and power of this wind. So the ship was caught up in it. They couldn't face the wind. So they just had to give way and takes the vessel of the ship and just sovereignly moves it where He wills. And they couldn't resist it. They couldn't stop it. And you see the sovereignty of the work of the Spirit and giving to us such an incredible book as the Holy Scripture. This is God breathed. This is the Spirit of God moving through people to write an infallible, tative, infallible, inerrant. And this is why Peter says, pay attention to it. So in conclusion, the transfiguration, seeing Christ glorified, hearing the voice of the Father, has confirmed to the apostles that the prophetic word about Christ's second coming is absolutely going to take place. And it is. You should believe that. Christ is coming back. We don't know when, but He is coming back. And that is something that we should pay attention to. That our lives should be impacted by the truth of His second coming. As we spend time in the Word of God, we should recognize what an incredible gift it is to us. We shouldn't neglect it. That the light of Scripture is what God has given to us to illumine our path in the darkness. And nobody can have this light but those who have been given eyes to see by God. It's a gift that you have as a believer. It's a gift that can illuminate your way in the darkness to bring blessing and protection to your life if we but pay attention to it. It's like the ninth plague in Egypt when darkness fell upon the land that was so thick they could feel it. And yet it says that all the Israelites had light in their homes. And I think that's a beautiful picture of the gift of Scripture that we have in the midst of a dark world. God has given us one lamp And it's the glory of Christ shining through His Word that can illuminate us. So we need to pay attention to it. We are children of light walking in darkness. So we need to fill our minds with the light of Scripture to guide us, to instruct us, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The prophetic word tells us that Christ is coming again. Attention to it. Then we can have the truth of God shining before us, bringing us into His peace, His joy, His blessing, if we fix ourselves upon living according to His Word. So in effect, Peter is saying, Trust the Word of God. You can build your life on the Word of God, but you must pay attention to it. Because if you don't, you'll get lost in the darkness and your light will not shine for Jesus Christ as it should. So, bottom line, Peter is saying, we've been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. It's a lamp. It's a light. And how we need to read it and pay attention to it every day. Because it will not only tell us of the future, 
but it will encourage and bless. So may the Lord encourage you and encourage me to recommit ourselves to paying attention to the written Word of God. So let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for Peter's exhortation to us this morning. We thank You, Lord, for the confidence that we can have that all of Scripture is infallible and authoritative. And that some of the gems found in this inspired Word of God are the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, particularly in the coming of our Savior. And Lord, may our faith be confident. May it be confirmed in the truth of Christ's second coming. And may that truth impact our lives today to give us hope in the day of hopelessness, to give us joy in the day of sadness and gloom, and to give us strength in the day when sometimes we are weak and just seemingly just can't carry on. But Lord, there is power in Your Word. There is light in Your Word. So Father, draw us back to it that we may taste the honey from the rock, that we might have the the light of Your truth to guide us in our dark days. So Lord, help us to that, that we might reap the blessing for the glory of Christ. And we ask it in His name. Amen.